Blog Talk Radio. This is KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and boy, we're on a Thursday already. And you believe these, this week just blew right by. Might have had something to do with the, with with a deadline, of course. The newspaper, the WAD is out, and it will be picking that up for the printer tomorrow. And we'll be putting up a lot of the articles tonight, as well as the rest of the weekend. So, should be coming into place near you very soon. I wanted to talk about a couple of things, a couple of people who want to put shout-outs. So before we get started with, with with our guest today, I wanted to talk about, first one would be a young man, again, he is trying to go from uh, from Malaysia to Finland. His project is called To Finland or Bust, and his project is under ucare.com. Again, he's from, obviously, out of this country. He's in Malaysia right now, trying to get into Finland. So he needs, you know, everything from the visa to uh, passport and all the good stuff that you need in order to be able to move from one country to another. Uh, he's trying to get to Finland so he can, he can work there. He's been there before and really loved the place and, and would like to go back there and stay. But, of course, he gotta, before he can work there, he actually has to get there. So... He could use your help. His name is Christopher. I'm putting his actual project information right into the show chat down below. And just so you guys know where this is, just so you know, the show information for today is a chat area. In that chat area, I will put uh, his links and things like that for the, from the show um, of who I'm talking to, our guests today, and any other pertinent information down below and also it goes two ways you guys can write a question or a comment you can go ahead and put it listed there and I will see it and relay that to our guests today also two other things Locker 13 these are great friends of mine uh, we did uh, a fe- couple features with them back in the very first issue of the WAD in February and they are at the last stages of their movie Locker 13 and they can really use your help to be able to, to get that final stretch of uh, backing because movies take a lot of money especially when they have as many good uh, uh, actors that are, that are in this particular movie you got to take a look at it because it's just unbelievable the number of Really awesome people that you know we've seen in other movies or other television shows that you guys can really I know identify with. So with that, we're going to also add that to our queue, so you guys can remember about Locker 13, help them to get that Kickstarter going. And then we'd also like to shout out to Coppercon Revolution, which is going to be uh, August 8th through the 11th, and that's going to be right here in Mesa, Arizona. And yours truly will be a moderator for some of the uh, special guests that they have coming, including L.E. Modessa Jr. I interviewed him a few months back right here on KWAD Radio. So he will be here here in Mesa Live. 
and we will be talking to him live. Also, a good friend of ours, longtime friend, Jennifer Roberson, who now lives in Tucson. She's vanity author, and she will also be here. Uh, we'll be discussing, uh, you know, it's obviously the different um, books that uh, Mr. Modessa has uh, gotten published, but also uh, Jennifer and he will be on a panel together talking about um, expanding fantasy to many books. So we're talking about a series. How do you keep a series going? So with that, I'm going to talk about our guest that we have today. Sean Ellis, he is an adventure book author. He's also into, <laughs> he's into a lot of things. Uh, he's written several thrillers, adventure novels. He's a veteran of operations, enduring freedom, and has a Bachelor of Science degree in natural resources policy from Oregon State University. He's also a member of the International Thriller Writers Organization and currently resides here in Arizona with us, where he divides his time between writing, adventure sports, and trying to figure out how to save the world. So with that, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Patty. Have you done anything to try to save the world today? <laughs> uh, well, um, in an indirect way, uh, I am. Uh, I, I believe that uh, saving the world, uh, a big part of that is going to be education, uh, specifically science education. And uh, I think science literacy is important. And so to that end, um, and of course to pay the bills, uh, I decided maybe <laughs> I should try my hand at teaching science. So I'm currently getting ready to um, to become a science high school science teacher, and so uh, to the extent that I did some coursework today, uh, yes, I was doing my part to save the world. There you go. Yeah, I didn't want to say that you were you were getting to teach. I wanted you to talk about that because I, you know, we will talk about that specific thing because science is a very important part of not only your life but the life of a lot of our listeners, and obviously science is part of science fiction. So there we go. We're discussing that. But I want to talk first about uh, you. When did you see it started in writing? When did you know you wanted to write? Oh, that's the, the worst question ever because, um, <laughs> I, you know, I can look back to fourth grade when I wrote my first novel, which was, uh, you know, a little... Uh, one of those little books that you make in, in primary school with paper and, and construction paper and you color and crayons. Uh, and I, I wrote a story, and I loved writing stories back then. Um, I know that uh, I tried my hand at writing another novel in middle school, or junior high school, and uh, actually I would say that some things that happened to me then were really important in my journey to be a writer because uh, I had a school counselor who really believed in me and took my handwritten notes, which were nearly illegible, and typed them all out back in the old days when you had to type everything with a typewriter. And uh, <laughs> yeah. and actually, you know, and of course that story never got finished, as is often the case with your first couple novels. But um, so, I mean, it goes back a long way that I've wanted to be a storyteller. Um, I think I tried again seriously, though, uh, towards the end of the 90s. That's when I started writing the manuscripts that are now finally getting published today. 
Well, you know, that's that's what it takes. And uh, you, I, I would take it you were in, I think, the late 30s or early 40s. I like that. Your age. <laughs> well, I'll go with that. No, I, I, I'm 46. I, I being, I, okay, so I'm being kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I always always uh, option to to make it better than what I think it might be, only because yeah. it makes everybody feel better. <laughs> I give it away when I talk about typewriters. You know, it's just right, right. I know, I know. You were you were showing your age a little bit there, but. Honestly, you know, a lot of us stayed with with the typewriters. I mean, in college, I was in typewriters. So, uh, but you know, I was also in journalism, and we were using typesetters. Right. Yeah, but it was still before, way before Adobe. <laughs> well, I suspect you... that the next evolution of, um, you, you know, how there's this this kind of a cliche of the the writer who uh, he's still pecking away at his manual, uh, his old Remington manual typewriter and all the rest of the world has moved on to computers. Where we're headed now, it looks to me like, uh, is that the keyboard, the QWERTY keyboard that we all know and love, is pretty mm-hmm. soon going to be gone, and people are going to be doing all their, their, whatever they do, texting, typing, on you know virtual keyboards like Google Glass and things like that. And I'm going to be that guy who's still pecking away at his computer with Word, Microsoft Word, <laughs> and uh, writing the old-fashioned way. So uh, it's... Well, you know what I see, I see. What I see directions going is, is that we will do without the keyboard entirely, and we will be speaking everything. Um, my now, my son, not, nineteen, I, he's doing that now. So. <laughs> yeah, I can't create that way. I'm. Uh, I know. In fact, I it, can't it write longhand anymore. I, I cannot uh, put my thoughts in order uh, verbally. Like you're, you probably can tell because I'm all over the place right now. Uh, but even like writing longhand, I find that when I have both hands engaged, uh, touch typing, that that's when mm-hmm. I'm at my most creative. So uh, I never want to. I know I don't ever want to go to to voice dictation because I, I won't be able to tell the stories. Yeah, it, you know I thought about that before because you know eventually our hands don't work as well as they used to, and um, I just turned fifty, so not to be real here, and. And so you have to consider, boy, I can I can imagine, but you know, one of these days the the electrodes will be right in our brains and we'll be able to think it. And then then what a mess is that going to be? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> There's just no way we can control that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you, something that I thought, well, you know, maybe I should start getting used to speaking it. But you know, I just, yeah, I agree with you. Um, yeah, you know, especially in the middle of the night, you're trying to be quiet. How can you possibly speak it? Uh, and sometimes you're getting into scenes that are so fast. You know what I'm saying? Uh, mm-hmm. They're they're coming out. They're, you you cannot type fast enough. And you're 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 going as fast as you can, but imagine trying to speak it. Um, because by you, you see the visions in your head, and your 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 words are coming out so fast that you're Fingers are falling over themselves, but to speak it would be that'd be to me even slower. I think that you know. No, I, I believe in this. It might be pseudoscience, but I kind of believe in that whole idea of uh, you know they they say that that the different hemispheres of your brain control your creativity, uh, and like one is more rational and logical, and the other one is more creative. Uh, and I I guess I believe I've convinced myself that by 
when I'm typing and using both hands to to put my thoughts down that I'm accessing a part of my brain that I wouldn't both be able to access otherwise. Ah. And, you know, I don't know if this is scientific or not, but sometimes when I'm editing, I'll be reading through and saying, you know, I'll think, oh, I should include a scene where I do this or this. And then I'll keep reading, and I did it. And I have no memory of having done it. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, and yet yeah. It, it, it came out, and so it's like, well, it must be the old left brain doing the work there. Yeah, or your subconscious. I think that your subconscious sometimes does things that you didn't know about. Um, Yeah, that's happened before to me where I I, I go back and I said, when did I write that? (laughs) And and I wrote this, wrote, and they said, the location that I I picked was after, I picked that location after I pretty much was done with the book. And so then I had to go back and, and, and I'm reading through it going like, oh, I did that. And it it just worked so perfectly. It just was like I meant it to be that way in the first place. And it's just weird. <laughs> it, you know, the brain is a wonderful thing. And we wind up seeing yep. things that we, we you know, we remember reading something, uh, you know, because I used to really get into reading encyclopedias. Because that's, that's back when, you know, we had the encyclopedia in a real physical book. And so you said, like going through that and finding out about all these different countries and and you know history of those countries and that kind of thing. So for some reason, it, it it did come out in the writing, and wow, that was weird. But that's you know, that's the brain and how it works, and uh, it already knew what it wanted to write, so that was it. Yeah. So you've got a couple different books, and I I met you. Um, it must have been a couple of years ago, I think it was. And you were just had just come out, I think, with the first book. And now you've got a lot more of them. I was really surprised. I didn't know that you you were been right. You've been writing like a like a demon there. Yeah. Well, I wish that were true. It, it's more like I wrote several books, and it took me a while for them to get to, to find a good home with a publisher. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and I guess it took a while for the uh, the nature of the industry to change such that there were more publishers for me to choose from. Uh, wow. So um, I think when I when uh, when our paths first crossed, I probably had a couple books out at that point, and I had a couple more in the pipeline. Um, I uh, only recall one, but, so I might have been just. I think you, you only showed me one of them. That was your adventure book. That's possible. Yeah, um, but it's true that yeah. Once I found uh, I found a good relationship with a publisher, and uh, it, it's Seven Realms Publishing out of um, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and I think they've got uh, five of my novels, and as well as a couple other works. Uh, there's a uh, an anthology that I edited that, that we published out of that uh, publishing house, and then I've had some other uh, some other publishing connections that have kind of happened in about the same period. Uh, but a lot of things kind of happened all at once, but they were all books that I wrote in those early years. And mm. so uh, in terms of actually producing new books uh, in the last few years, it's kind of I've been in, kind of going in a different direction. Uh, I spent a lot of the last couple of years uh, doing collaborations with um, other authors. Um, That's always a good way to get started. Or, pardon me? That's always a good way to get started. Yeah, I, I'm hoping. 
Um, and, and I did see a real bump in, in uh, some of my sales uh, when the first one of those came along. Um, but I uh, see I see that one yeah, here. Prime, I'm still the Prime. Whip author. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's actually should be coming out very soon. Uh, I think uh, maybe as soon as Friday. Uh, that that'll hit. Uh, wow, that's hit really Amazon soon. And e-book. Okay, so that'll be an ebook only right now, or is that going to be in both? Uh, I'm pretty sure it will be in in, uh, print also. Okay. Um, Good. Usually it takes a little bit longer for the the print versions to get set up. I was just talking to Jeremy Robinson, who's the the lead author on that book, and uh, he's finalizing the cover copy today, so. Yeah, it used to be the other way around. uh, But now, now it's yeah, every, everybody true. goes to ebook format first, and then they go to then they go to print. All right. Well, I'm I'm a dinosaur. I'd much rather read a book in, in <laughs> on paper, a dead tree. But yeah. um, but when I look at at how my books sell, uh, you know, maybe one or two dead trees a month, and forty or fifty uh, of of a book uh, of an individual title in that same period. So you can't, I can't argue with the, with the marketplace. The marketplace wants ebooks. So. Yeah, I know it. For good or for bad, that's the way it is. And uh, you did you did another one, I guess, with Jen, with Jeremy uh, called King. Right. What it is is uh, that book one of that. Jeremy Robinson, who is uh, he, he's I guess I call him a science thriller writer. Um, mm-hmm. He likes to write monster stories. Uh, usually there's like a, a kind of a scientific explanation for the monsters. Um, he did a, a book called Island 731 uh, last year, which was about uh, an island in the Pacific, which is, I'd say it's sort of loosely patterned after the Isle, Isle of Dr. Moreau, where oh. you've got a, this island where they're conducting weird experiments on people and animals, and now they've created monsters. And uh, so he likes to have monsters in his stories. But uh, a few years ago, he... he um, pitched an idea for a book series to, I believe it was the St. Martin's Press, might have been Thomas Dunn, can't keep those straight, uh, to to do a series of books about a a black ops special forces team that would, you know, in the course of their adventures, come across monsters and science mysteries and things like that. So he did three novels from that series. Uh, Pulse was the first, and then Hinting, and one called Threshold was the final one of that initial three-book deal. And after Threshold, he uh, basically put out a call to several authors of my ilk uh, to to write sort of novellas to keep the story mm-hmm. going in between the third book and the fourth book, which he was working on at that point. And so uh, I was one of those. And I kind of pitched this idea, uh, and he loved it, and... The villain that I created for that little novella, it was like, a, I think, a 35,000-word novella. Uh, he liked the villain so much that he said, well, let's go do another story. And so I ended up doing three novellas uh, for that, um, that character. And those are now available in an omnibus series because you get all three in one. Uh, it's longer than a regular novel. Uh, right. So... Um, 
so anyway, he published, he went ahead and published the novel along with several of his novellas. And then he decided to do one more uh, novel to kind of wrap up the story arc. And he also wanted to do an origin story of how the team came together. And so he called me and said, hey, look, you want to do this origin story? And so that's what Prime is. Prime is uh, the story of how these, these uh, special forces uh, soldiers come together. And, and of course, we knew it had to be a little bit uh, lower key than the, uh, the rest of the series. We didn't want to start them off with the biggest adventure. But uh, I got a chance to explore one of my favorite uh, old history mysteries, uh, which is the Voynich Manuscript. I don't know if any of your viewers or listeners will have known that, but uh, it's this medieval <laughs> manuscript that uh, they've, they've actually dated it to the 14th century, uh, but it's written in code, and they haven't. nobody's been able to track the code. Nobody knows what this book says. Hmm. And, uh, so it's full of no, you know, we've, we've read about that. That's a, that's a real thing? It is, yes. Wow. Oh. Uh, okay. So I, I took a crack at, at explaining what it's all about, and uh, the world will get to find out my uh, my crazy idea in a couple days. <laughs> that sounds cool. As you say, we see some of these and other, you know, about this elusive code uh, in other... Uh, books and movies over the years, uh, especially if you like adventure, like I do. Uh, I've read about several of those before, and I'm going like, you know, it's probably not even true that there'd be astrosaurs. But, you know, I thought crystal skulls were kind of fictitious, and I find out that it might actually be true. So, <laughs> you know, there have been stranger worlds. Well, with, a lot the world. of these things, with a lot of these things, um, you come across something, and you think, wow, that's crazy. And then you dig yeah. a little deeper and scratch the surface and you find out, oh, okay, there's a rational explanation for it. But the being a you know, a thriller writer or, or writing science fiction fantasy, you can you can actually run with the crazy theory and, and you don't have to really you know, accept the, the crazy idea. You can you can play with it. There's a a a bookstore called Advent or a press publisher called Adventures Unlimited. Uh, they actually have a store uh, up, up north, um, and they just deal in all sorts of conspiracy, uh, aliens, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tesla science. And I just love, <laughs> I get their catalog, and I just love it because it's great for inspiration. And, and you know, most of it is, is easily debunked. But where's yeah. the fun in that? Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, it depends on, on how, how much crazy. Yeah, how much crazy can you can you get into, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, you know, I my son likes to great believe in the in the Phoenix lights and you know, then I had a friend who I think it was a couple of days ago sent me or sent pictures on Facebook uh showing what she thought was the Phoenix lights. It was just you know, I'm going like, Okay you, you know it's uh that's enough guys. <laughs> well, we all like a little bit of mystery in our world. Sure, like a little bit of mystery, but it's like, yeah, something's you know, nah. And then another thing's like, yeah, sure, I want to believe in Yetis, you know. Only so far, as long as he's not in my backyard. Otherwise, he's goner. But, Here in uh, Arizona, uh, we've got the Muggion creature. Oh, geez. And, we, and we've is, got uh, our, uh, our our version of <laughs> our version yeah. of that kind of monster. I yeah. actually uh, I actually included that in one of my novellas with the, the call sign characters as well. We got I got to. Uh, I, I moved him a little bit because uh, 
Arizona has its own Bigfoot, and it's called the Muggian, Muggian beast or the uh, Muggian creature. And uh, I think he lives in the Grand Canyon uh, area. But I, I moved him to the superstitions for the second uh, call sign book. And uh, oh, that's a, had some fun with that as well. Yeah. Well, that's uh, definitely a, uh, you know, it's not very traversed because it's considered one of the hardest mountains to climb. So uh, it's just, you know, because of the ravines and, and, and crags they've got up there in that mountain, it's very hard to climb. But it, it, it's just full of folklore because of it. You know, people get up in there and they get lost. So right. then there's some, some mystery behind all that, you know? And, and maybe they get their brains a little bit parched and they wander out and they have all sorts of really bizarre things that they saw yes. when they were in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, you exactly. Yeah, which can happen very easily. <laughs> so you have to say, well, you know, I, you got to have fun with it. Kind of like when you go to a movie and you know, hey, you know, this, you know this is going to not be true. You know they're going to make such a mess of it, but you know you just got to have fun with it. You got to leave the reality at the door. Um, but then you, you, some of you people don't don't leave the reality because they're living in that reality. I will say this though, and and this probably comes with having the interest in, in science as well as in science fiction, that sometimes as a creator, when you start digging into things, you discover that. Sometimes the, the actual explanation is interesting enough to, uh, and maybe yeah, makes sense. than the reality, and uh, and so I like to do the research into that stuff. You know, I I look it up, uh, what the story is, then I dig a little bit deeper, and sometimes the better story is is what's really happening. Yeah, true. So sometimes stranger than fiction. That's what I always say. So let's let's talk about your Pacific series here. By the way, I'm letting everybody know uh, the Facebook page for you. As uh, everybody is on the chat information, you can just click it. It's clickable. It goes right to right to his Facebook page. That way, you can uh, talk to him there. Or again, you can also write it right in the chat down below. And to let you know, also, you don't. I don't have to have them all by myself. So you guys can call in and talk. 714-242-5145. It does sound like we have a bit of a strong coming in. Not sure if you saw that. But um, we'll hopefully... No, I get all my we'll, weather on my phone, and my phone is otherwise occupied. <laughs> yeah, so, so don't don't uh, don't ask them any questions on that phone yet. So let's talk about your Pacific series here. We've got... The ones that I know about was Jadaz Jelton. And I I have always found this a curious because uh it's got that adventure look to it, which which I really love. And you got uh, how many books in that series now? I'd say three. There are three, yes. And okay. uh Yes. Yeah, the Dodge Dalton series, um it's I, I like to I, I originally was calling it um pulp adventure. Because uh-huh. it definitely is a throwback to the era of uh, the 1930s pulp magazines like Doc Savage. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh-huh. But I, I think I also kind of I've started to characterize it as uh, retro sci-fi adventure. 
because it's very, very much a okay. science fiction story, but it's set in the 19, late 1930s. So it's it's, uh, it's got that feel of uh, well, I, I I love I've loved that time period ever since I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I've always wanted to write Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I love that. <laughs> One so of my favorite, all-time favorites. That led me to Doc Savage, which is one of the characters that certainly inspired uh, Indiana Jones. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So I wanted to write a story in that in that genre, and uh, the story of how that came about is, is kind of kind of convoluted and interesting, but not that interesting. <laughs> but uh, as I say, I, I I came up with this idea for the story. And it was called Falcons. I named it Falcons Flight uh, because there's a character in the story named Captain Falcon. Uh, Captain Falcon is, is uh, in the novel is a, is a literary hero. Uh, he, he's fictional, written by the title character Doc Salton, who's, who's a writer. And uh, God finds out that this Captain Falcon isn't in fact fictional at all, but is a real person and that he needs to find Captain Falcon in order to save the world. Uh, so he sets off on an adventure to find Captain Falcon. And so I called it Falcon's Flight, and I thought that was a, was an okay name for it. And uh, I didn't have a publisher for it in the story, but then I, I uh, back in, uh, I think it would be 2009? Uh, yeah, 2010. It was sort of, I think, 2008. I was talking to a publisher, and we were getting ready to, to uh, setting our calendar to publish the book. He loved it, loved the idea. And uh, about that time, a young man named uh, Falcon Heaney became infamous when he allegedly uh, was caught up in his father's homemade balloon and flew several hundred miles. I don't know if you remember that little news item. Oh, yeah, 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 the young kid. Balloon, balloon boy. Yeah, and so when oh, that boy. happened, I'm like, oh, Falcon's Flight. I can't name my book Falcon's Flight. People are going to think it's about the balloon boy. Um, and I think everybody's <laughs> forgotten about uh, forgotten about him mostly, but it, it it kind of prompted me to consider a name change, and so I decided to go big uh, in, in the best tradition of uh, Indiana Jones and another one of my favorite pulp-inspired characters, Buckaroo Banzai. We decided to oh, the title, and so we named that first book The Adventures. Uh, I'm sorry, God bless you. Uh, it's The Adventures of Dodge Dalton in the Shadow of Falcon's Wings. It's one of the longest book titles I've ever come up with, and so uh, that kind of sets the that sets the tone for the series. Every subsequent book is is a little bit longer than the title. Um, but yes, there's three books there now, and they all follow this this uh, character, Dodd Dalton, who is right. He's uh, like I said, he's a pulp writer. He's actually writing for a newspaper, but it's uh, right fiction. And then he ends up getting sucked into these crazy adventures that involve um, lost civilization. Really, that's it's kind of almost steampunkish, don't you think? Right time period. Yeah. Well. Um, I wasn't aware of steampunk when I started writing them. Uh, again, I was kind of, but I definitely, I'm in, definitely influenced by uh, the Jules Verne and and H.G. Uh, Wells writers. In fact, uh, 
I've been wanting to, to dip my toe into steampunk for a while now and trying to come up with a, a good story because I love, I guess they call it weird western, uh, mm-hmm. things yeah, like Frisco exactly. County Junior and uh, uh, yeah, Frisco County inspired yeah. me. And so I really want to, to do one of those, but uh, I don't know. I got I got some other things to clear off my, uh, <laughs> my creative calendar before. Yeah, Frisco County Junior has uh, time travel in it too. Did you know that? Yes, of course. I'm a proud <laughs> owner of uh, the entire series on DVD. Yeah, I, I do too. Actually, it's kind of funny. Because uh, my ex actually gave it to me and thought I'd like it, which I did. Um, and uh, probably one reason I married him in the first place, because he knew what I liked. <laughs> well, I but, was a fan uh, even when uh, yeah. when Briscoe came out, I was a fan. I mean, when I watched it when it was on first run TV back on uh, on uh, the Fox Network. Uh, yeah, I it, don't it know where uh, I was. premiered, I believe, the same time as, as The X-Files. Both of those shows. Oh, now uh, see, I I watch the X Files religiously, so um, yeah, hmm, yeah. I I like the um, I I like the the kind of taking a known time period and and mashing it up a little bit with some speculative fiction. Um, sure. Which is sure. why I, I love Briscoe. Um, I don't care for uh, westerns that much. I try. I really do. And living here in Arizona, it's like we're surrounded by the, the Wild West, and yet I, I just my Western's got to have a little bit of weird to it, or it's just not as much fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I was reading something about that, that they're talking about the muta colors that they usually use in, in those movies are technically wrong. They actually had more more uh, lively colors that they would use. And I thought, what, well, okay, that's more steampunkish because steampunk likes to, you know, a little more brighter colors. Yeah. Not muted browns, but you know burgundies and that kind of thing, and and yellows and oranges, and so hmm, that that case uh, that kind of changes our idea of what westerns really should have been, and perhaps the movies kind of got it wrong. Maybe it should have oh, been more. Okay. The first movies, <laughs> the, those first western movies that were made, weren't uh-huh. uh, weren't historical movies. They were contemporary movies almost, you know. Cause, the Wild West was happening when the very first uh, motion pictures were made. So, but, of course, That's they were true. all in black and white, so it's hard to say what the colors were. That's true. It's hard to say what the colors were. Um, but when we see things, you know, television shows about them making those particular things, uh, you know, those uh, movies, they're always showing them as being dark browns and, and tans, you know. So I just thought it was interesting that the color issue and uh, that maybe sometimes historically they just hadn't gotten it quite right in the movies when technically it was something else. Well, that's something I will keep in mind as I I continue to develop this outline I've got for a sort of steampunk Wild West uh, Victorian era adventure that I've been working on and kicking around. There you go. So, yeah, that's what's cool about talking to other authors. (laughs) Give more color. Give more color. The the women's hats would have been just, you know, ostrich feathers, not outrageous colors. So, and of course, it would be more fun. It would be more fun. The, the more brighter colors you use, you, you can talk about that. So, it's, it's always fun to um, create something that's uh, a, a little more lively. And I, and I know you're into that because that's what you write. It, it's something that's more adventure 
um, somebody have your main character just accidentally gets involved in something, <laughs> which is uh, well, really think, Indiana, uh, Indiana Jonas, yeah. by the way. Who's <laughs> my favorite? What, what character. I love, and of course, like I say, the '30s was what initially appealed to me. Which I think you know, the mm-hmm. steampunk probably comes out of a similar kind of desire to to embrace a time period where we didn't have all the answers, where no. huge parts of the world were still completely unexplored. Uh, you know, there was still mystery uh, in the world, and where your hero could very well be, you know, on his own without anybody. You know, he couldn't he couldn't call up uh, on his sat phone and, and get a supersonic transport <laughs> come in and whisk him away from danger you know he had to and, and that's that's why i loved the indiana jones uh series you know there was you know it was kind of primitive by our standards you know you still have vehicles and things but uh trans transportation is is you know that that iconic map of the world with the little red line you know right and, but in the background yeah. you're seeing seeing a series of old propeller planes that probably don't go faster than about 150 miles an hour. And, you know, traveling around the world still took some time. And, and you know, now as, as a thriller writer writing contemporary thrillers, um, it's hard to keep up with the pace and the change of technology. You might write about something in a story that you think is just cutting-edge technology, and, you know, with the time it takes between writing the book and getting it published and getting people to learn about it, your cutting edge technology suddenly is very dated. Um, yes, yes. You know, and that can happen in just a couple of years where, you know, you're writing about people using PDAs and you know, now people are like, What's a PDA? Oh well it's kinda of like a smartphone. Ah. <laughs> so I it's know. really you know, with with the historical period fiction at least you can you can kinda you you stick with what you know, you you've got a fixed uh, point in time, and everything derives from that yeah. fixed point in time. And you, you got the technology that was available then; you, that's what it is. And you don't have to worry about about trying to anticipate technology. Instead, you get to revel in in the history of technology. That's true. That's true. I mean, you can still be a science fiction writer and not necessarily be, um, you know, a purveyor of understanding what the future is going to be. At least I think it's well. And yeah, of course, yeah, with science fiction, it's it's that whole thing of you know the the relationship between uh, what the science fiction writers predict and what becomes reality. Um, right now, I am uh, actually reading uh, our, uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, Galactic Empire trilogy, and it's kind of uh, it's amusing to read what you know science fiction written in the 1950s and the things he talks about, some of which are. You know, these he anticipated these being thousands of years in the future. Uh, some of those technologies are actually considered really very quite dated by our standards. The things that he anticipates being, you know, leaps forward. But would we have those things if not for those science fiction writers? Well, that's that's the question. One of those, and uh, just, yeah, talk about that at, at the, the convention quite often. Because uh, if we wouldn't, if it would not have been written, would have happened. So, did the science fiction writers have, you know, keen insight, or were they actually the creators themselves, having having glimmered the 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 idea, and therefore partly made that happen? 
Of course, that's fascinating to me because I'm time travel oriented, but <laughs> it's just that what if that we just love. So we we're talking about, you know, there's a lull in the conversation there. Um, I love your character, your Dodge, Dodge All. I'm looking forward to the other one, the other books that I haven't gotten into. Uh, Fortune's Favors, is that kind of the same type of book, but a different character? Fortune Favors is uh, is from a different series, but it is part of a series uh, featuring a character named Nick Kismet. And, uh, Which is an interesting name, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a story there, too, but I'm not going to tell it today. Uh, no, what happened with that, um, that it, it was a... a Oddly enough, it uh, started up life originally as another one of those pulp kind of inspired series um, that I eventually uh, you know, I brought forward into the modern era because I just got the sense that that uh, maybe the historical thing wasn't the way to go, and so I, I updated the character and brought him into the, the modern era. Uh, but basically, the story of the Nick Kismet series is that this this character uh, he's during Operation Desert Storm which would be the first Gulf War, uh, the first war in Iraq and Kuwait back in the 1990s. He's a young Army officer, and um, he's sent on a secret mission. And in the process of the mission, he discovers that he he is part, he's an intrinsic part of some kind of big global conspiracy. Um, and huh. that has now shaped his life. From that point forward, he's trying to figure out who this, you know, what this conspiracy is and what they want with him. And uh, all he really knows is that uh, it's, they're involved in, in covering up secrets uh, relating to ancient mysteries and, and artifacts, things like you know, the Shroud of Heaven, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Ark of Covenant, which is uh, mm. glimpsed briefly in the first novel of that series, The Shroud of Heaven. Um, the second novel, uh, called Into the Black, uh, involves a search for the Golden Fleece of uh, Jason and the Argonaut. Oh, and then okay. this new one, Fortune Favors, uh, which, of course, uh, Fortune Favors the Bold is the quote that uh, I took that title from. Uh, it involves a search for the Fountain of Youth. Huh. And, of course, because uh, of the way I write the books I write, they find it. So <laughs> I hope that's not a spoiler for those who haven't read it It wouldn't it be a story if they didn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, what I would I would say they're you know they're action adventure stories uh-huh. uh, because you know most of the book is about the action it's it's the chases the explosions and the fights and things like that but then you do get the payoff at the end where there's a little bit of the supernatural or the paranormal or something to set it apart just like those Indiana Jones stories that I love so much where yeah. you know, the, the emphasis is on the action but the uh-huh. uh, the the woo-woo element is there, too. Woo-woo. <laughs> now, you were saying on Facebook, and, and I can understand your, uh, your your reticence here, and uh, Amazon categorizing in men's adventure fiction. So by by saying that, you're saying that you really didn't like the category because you definitely didn't want to lose your female audience. Uh, yeah, it, it's true. Um, you know, what happened really, I think, in the publishing industry was that um, 
Well, it's it's a known fact statistically that more women read than than men. Women are bigger readers than men. Just that's that's a fact out there. And when okay. when the publishing industry really kind of went into a nosedive a couple of years ago, or I should say it's probably about ten years ago now, the only sector of the publishing industry that kept making that continued to make money was romance novels. Romance novels right. were still selling big when um, everything else was was in a tailspin. Yeah. Now yeah. going back further than that, I mean, I think the publishers really wanted to kind of like reach the market that they weren't reaching way back when. And so they invented this idea of men's fiction, which would serve as a foil to the romance novel. And, you know, basically it was no different than the pulp novels of the of the Golden Age, like like we talked right. about. Uh, but but they, they had to come up with a title for it, and they called it men's fiction. Um, <laughs> but, I you know, the irony is that if you... Uh, if you go, you know, I think some of the, the leading authors of men's fiction, uh, mainstream authors, uh, Clive Cussler here, our, our uh, you know, our favorite uh, local mm-hmm. author uh, here in Arizona. Right. You know, I would say that 75% of his readership is female. It, it's the, the, the idea that there's a, a gender bias towards one type of story, it just isn't true. Um, and... You know, I, I interact with a lot of uh, my readers on Facebook, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of people, women reading my stories. So, yeah, men's fiction is is kind of a, a, a poorly named category. Um, it, it, I, I think Amazon is actually trying to phase it out a little bit, and kind uh, mm. of just go with action adventure with thriller. And and it's probably better that they do. Uh, we don't call romance novels women's romance or women's fiction. We just call them romance novels. We know what they are. <laughs> Anybody can right, read. right, and, and honestly, you know that doesn't mean that only women read romance either. So, no, obviously not, because I, not. Women, more women read than men. That's that's statistically, you know, the last I heard, at least, that was a statistical fact that women are more likely to read fiction than men. Uh, so, so it, they're you carrying know, all the other the uh, genres as well. Right. It, it that's that is a, a misnomer by saying that just because you're a woman that you only read romance, and 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 say that well yeah it's romance is the biggest seller because only women read it is is not true. So it's <laughs> it just you know sometimes we get into into categories or get into uh, you know titles or or having to label something. Which of course, you know, drives right. most of us well, crazy. I think that what happened with the the men's fiction thing wasn't so much uh, that they were, you know, just trying to set it apart, as they were trying to make it attractive to men. They were trying to say, "Hey, this is just for you, so you can start reading now because we have books just for you." And I don't think it worked. But you know, <laughs> what I liked about the the men's fiction category is that uh, n- not so many people knew about it. And so it was yeah. really easy to to uh, to get a boost when it comes time to look at those uh, Amazon sales rankings because, like Fortune Favors, uh, we had a very good uh, a very good month when it came out, and uh, I was able to get up to I think number three on the, the list of men's fiction. So, yeah, that's number three out of all the men's fiction books in America that that hour. There you go. Well, you know. I know it's a matter of a numbers game when it comes to Amazon, and whatever you happen to be t- 
you know, categorizing right. it. And if if that helps you, benefits you to to categorize them in an in obscure type of category, then what the heck? Exactly. It's it's a it's more about bragging rights than anything else. I know. Uh, I know. It's a true story. Many 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 years ago, um, you know, I mentioned in my bio that I do adventure sports, and I don't do them as much as I'd like. But once upon a time, I did. But uh, I was uh, a friend of mine who did triathlons came to me and said, "Hey, uh, you know, they're they're doing these state games, and uh, there's a triathlon. There's a mountain bike division in the triathlon, and there's a there's a relay team division in the mountain bike triathlon." And nobody ever does that. So if we do that, we can win the gold medal. So I was uh, on a triathlon relay team in the mountain bike division of the uh, State Games of Oregon, and I won the gold medal. You know, with uh, I think there was only two people, uh, two other, or one other team. Uh, you know, if you, if you play the game right, you can get some awesome bragging rights. So I, <laughs> I won a gold medal. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, I'm a best-selling author. Yeah, you can say it again. You say that in a specific category, but you never—we never bother to say that, you know. But you know, right. that's, that's the way it works. That's way—that's the way the game's played, and uh, whatever we can do to to rise above the the hordes that are out there right now, um, is is what we got to do. So, <laughs> so tell well, me you about know, it. this. Is one thing, but oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you finish it. Well, I was going to say, this is something that, um, since I, I suspect you know authors listen to things like this as much as, as just readers, uh, that I think that um, there's this perception that it's a competition, that we're competing for readers, that you know, uh, as an author, I want to get people to read my book instead of somebody else's book. And, and from the reader's perspective, that's not true. Readers want more stories. Readers mm-hmm. who read Clive Kessler want more books like that. And so, you know, if, if authors can kind of work collectively, you know, pool their, their uh, efforts in terms of, you know, uh, cross-promoting and things mm-hmm. like that, I think that we can really do, a, you know, we can help everybody if we work together. If we keep working as individuals, we're just yeah. a lot of, of voices uh, shouting in a crowded room. And I've always felt this way. I think you probably know that. Um that's one reason why I get multiple authors to band together to do, you know, gang ads and and go to places together. We we do a, a mass signing, um, in order to inter- introduce more variety of books because you know not everybody's going to like fiction, not everybody's going to like nonfiction. So you give them a variety, and you're going to like something that you bring them. Um, and that and that's what really what that's all about is being able to. But you know, resources of different authors and bring them to readers. Because I agree with you. I mean, Kyle Custer can only put out one book a year. Actually, you know, he's proven he can put out four books a year. <laughs> oh, he's doing four books. But, he's got a group. He's got well, a group of people. With, with co-authors. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not just him that's writing but, but it. That's yeah, the thing. It, it is a good point, but because. The, I, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people who who read every Clive Kessler novel, and it's still not enough for them because even if he can yeah. put out four books a year, they can still read four books a month. So you know, yeah, it's so just about you, connecting. You just you kept them busy for one week out of you know maybe one one month in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we do the rest of the summer? <laughs> 
know. So yeah, they're they're always looking for things, and and unfortunately, they have to wade through uh, a lot of crap out there. Uh, right. But you know, there there's there's always a market for that too. That's just it. Yeah, you know, not everybody reads at the same level. Uh, I found that to be the case for sure. That you know, some people think there's no absolutely no problem with some of the stuff that I've seen put out. Um, they read it just fine. So you know, yes, it's, it's riddled through all sorts of bad grammar and 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 you know, commas aren't where they should be, uh, periods aren't even non-existent. But for some reason, they can read that and I can't. <laughs> so it it just goes to show you that they're used to you know not reading it the way that that others who read on a regular basis do, and it makes sense to them. So that's fine. Does that mean that that those books are bad? No, it means that they actually targeting a different market. I'm I'm definitely not that market. Uh, right. But they are. I know a lot of people who are in that market, who have no problem reading uh, text without any periods. Right. So. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to get into a big discussion about the merits of self publishing versus you know traditional publishing versus no, independent kind of publishing, wait. which is the direction right. I, I try to go. But but I do think that uh, you know I'm a big advocate for the small press, independent mm-hmm. press. I would rather have a publisher than self publish just because um, you know I know that my publisher is going to to go that extra mile and and, and make sure that the book gets edited and make that sort right. of look professional. And are things going to slip through? Yes, obviously. You know, I, there's typos sure. in books that come from Random House, but of course, uh, at least when you know when all is said and done, I can say, you know what, we 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 checked it, and and somebody else got checked it, and somebody else checked it, and it wasn't just me, um, right? And you know, and you know, any author, as you well know, you can read your book so many times, you know, ten, um, ten, fifteen times. Yeah. And there's still going to be something that slips through just because you see what you expect to see. And you expect yeah. to see that you wrote it right. <laughs> and so you miss, yeah. you, know, you don't catch those missing articles or um, punctuation that wasn't quite right because you're expecting to see it the way you think you wrote it. Right. And, uh, or a word's so, missing yeah, I, I because liked... I added it in my mind, but it's right. not on paper. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's. That's one of the reasons I definitely advocate for the small press and and not so much for the self-published angle. But you know, to each his own. It all works if it makes you happy. You can go for it. But uh, you know, it's nice to, to have a, um, um, a somebody there that's advocating for you and taking some of the burden off of you, so that you can just write the story and not worry about oh, yeah. designing the, the package. Um. Of course, I know you're both a publisher and an author, so you do a lot of the uh, the other parts of it as well. Yeah. Not just for yourself, but for other authors. So you know, you, you probably understand the importance of having somebody like that. Oh sure. I, I also believe that if you are in a working on a series, that you should stick with the same editor, uh, because of the fact that she's going to read your first book and know what mistakes you make, especially if you wrote. Like like you said, you were writing like a, you wrote a bunch of things at once, and then it took a while for your stuff to get through the pipeline. Well, you've already made changes, but and the other uh, the other books behind it that didn't make it in the first first book. So your first editor 
having gone with the first book, will know, oh, this is this is not correct because in first book you did you named this person this per you know, this this person was actually the uncle and not the the brother. Which actually happened in, in my partner's book, not mine, but happened in his book. <laughs> where he called him an uncle and a grandfather, which he couldn't be both. Yeah, I know so, that uh, actually some things like that happened with, with me on Fortune Favors where I actually uh, went through the manuscript and I made some changes to the things. Uh, and there was a character who was uh, initially, I, I think I presented her as one character's stepdaughter. And uh, yeah. then I decided to change it so that she wasn't a stepdaughter anymore. And I thought I I picked out all those, but my editor caught him that I had yeah. not done that. So, you know, things sneak through. Exactly, and that, that's why you know you see you go with one editor that you like, and you hand her the first book as well as the runs after that. And, you know, two guys got along. <laughs> Now, I've had I I've handed her a book two of somebody's, but I said, look, say so he's got book one. Um, I didn't publish that book one, so I might give it to you though to read because she wanted to read book one before she could read book two, which I agree, you should. Mm-hmm. Again, you're going to catch more yeah, things. That, 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 that kind of happened with me with uh, with the Nick Kismet books because my initial publisher was uh, Sawan Press, which is uh, they mostly deal in romance novels. But uh, somebody suggested that I I query them. And back in 2005, they were publishing all kinds of genre fiction. Getting some feedback there. And uh, so, so they took they took a look at that first novel, Shroud of Heaven, and loved it. And then they said, oh, and now we're just going to be focusing on romance novels. And I was without a publisher for uh, the second one. Uh-huh. So I wasn't able to get that kind of uh, editorial continuity you're talking about, and I kind of regret that. Yeah, and and, and those kind of things happen, I think, a lot now, with uh, different publishers going out of business uh, or or moving into. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, we're getting some feedback here, um, and we're uh, in the fact that oh shoot. I lost it. <laughs> and that, that we, we have a lot of businesses, you know, a lot of uh, publishers, small presses actually, going out of business or rolling into other other houses. Mm-hmm. And when they're ro- rolling into other houses, then, you know, those kind of things, you know, that continuity happens and they say, oh, we're dropping our romance line, which, of course, would be crazy if they were doing that, but... It, I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> so they, that's been happening a lot. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's the small presses. You know, having. Uh, they think the big presses are having a problem. Uh, small presses, more so because they they just they're starting with less money to begin with. But I still agree with you that small presses are definitely definitely worth the their weight. And uh, gold because they care about the book, and uh, and while they you know they can't do any more for you than uh, what a big publisher can anyway. Uh, you know, their big publishers right. are going and to I, give you, you know, some more marketing. There's that belief that the big publishers are going to magically, you know, somehow make your book sell, and that's not really true either. 
Um, no. no. I've, I've talked to lots of authors who basically feel like they're on their own once they get their book published. It's they're they're doing just as much as I am to promote their books on Facebook and, and social media. Oh yeah. I and it's gotten worse in the last since 2009 when I started all this. Um, but it, yeah. So it's important. That's why I you know started the the group on publishing and marketing because that way it helps to uh, demystify some of these things and let them know, hey, yeah, you need to need to learn how to do the marketing because that's so important. Uh, but not nobody else going to do it for you. You need to you need to do it yourself. But it helps is that you you find some other groups and people who can help. Uh, as you said, not everybody can be an island on their own. And I agree with you. Right. Well, that was hard to get through. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, I didn't want to didn't want to talk about publishing because I, I know. It, it's, it's, you know, it is what it's, we do, but at the same time, it's not that interesting to anybody who doesn't do it. So. <laughs> and yeah, and for some reason, like, you know, no matter where I go, to out a, keep asking me these questions. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, okay, Dark Trinity, which is, I think, is an offshoot of, uh, you You didn't, this is like a new series for you, correct? Uh, yes. Um, it's it's more of, it, it's another uh, contemporary adventure story, oh, okay. sort of a okay. sci-fi thriller, uh, treasure hunt type book. I, I love the treasure hunt books. That's Most of my books somehow end up in the treasure hunt. Um, but it's a little more, uh, a little more, I don't know, out there. It's, uh, hmm. I, I'd say uh, it would appeal to the fans of Tomb Raider. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it starts with the, you know, the, the artifacts of Atlantis. And, uh, and so, you know, I say finding Atlantis was just the beginning. You know, there's lots of books where, uh, really good books that are all about trying to find Atlantis. And so I yeah. thought, well, you know what, let's just, Let's just take care of that in the prologue. We find and they don't actually find Atlantis; they just find some relics that uh, indicate that Atlantis may have been real, and then move forward from there. And in this case, it's uh, you know it's very much uh, it's like a Tomb Raider game, the game Tomb Raider. You got a strong female uh, protagonist who is uh, out there trying to <laughs> trying to uh, find uh, this. It's it's a relic that's divided up into three parts, and uh, towards the end they discover that it's it's not just uh, a mystical relic; it's actually some advanced uh, alien technology, uh, mm-hmm. and Good. that uh, and it's it's part of a a trilogy that I proposed, although it's the only book available right now. Uh, I am actually working on the uh, the second book as we speak. It's my number awesome. one project. So uh, and uh, lots of people very you know, really love that book. So it, uh, that, that's kind of what determines what I'm going to write next is by what people are asking for, and and uh, which is kind of why Dodge Dalton doesn't get as much attention as I'd like because <laughs> it's not selling quite as well as the others. And so I was like, well, I guess you know, the market has spoken. Ah, uh, wow. Well. Yeah, yeah. I think I, with, I think with Dark Trinity, because of the 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 three is right there in the title, I've got to make it a trilogy. So, uh, 
So I'm pushing okay, ahead so and targeting you, three books intention. for that. That's, that's good. You have an intention of doing three books, so you might as well put it out there. So, you, Joe, you have the, the other two books have, have been approved by the publisher? Um, yes and no. I don't, I don't want to say too much about that because uh, it, it kind of uh, I haven't worked out exactly what the publishing solution will be. Um, right. Uh, but um, gotcha. what I, my my goal actually, as I work on book two, is that I'm going to basically try to just write every single idea I've got into the second book. Uh, and I'm not going to hold anything back. <laughs> and and then, uh, you know, once I'm done, then I'm going to have to really have to figure out what to do to top it. Um, so I don't want it to, to fall victim to the uh, that second book curse that happens with so many trilogies where the second book is just sort of a change <laughs> from the, you know, whether it's right. the Two Towers or, or whatever, you know. You don't want it to be kind of the, the valley between the, the high points, you know. So I, I'm going to try to make this one... Uh, you know, pull out all the stops on the second book and just write it as crazy and, and out there as I can. And uh, I'll have to really figure out what to do in the third book. But I'm not thinking about the third book yet, just the just the second book. <laughs> well, sometimes we, we we think about it. We at least write down some kind of notes on what you want to go. Is that how you did the, the thought of the trilogy, is to write down what you wanted, where you wanted to end? Well, yeah, uh, I think initially the first story I wrote, uh, I intended it to be the start of a series with the character, and uh, it went through some changes before publishing. Uh, and and then once it, it did come time to publish it, I thought, okay, well, let's make this, uh, we'll make this a, a trilogy. And uh, and I had an idea of what was going to happen in, in the second and third books, uh, in terms of sort of the, the broad plot, but not so much in terms of the action. Uh, of course, the action is what I like to write, you know, big uh, dynamic scenes that would look great on if they were to be made into a movie. Anybody's out there listening? <laughs> um, so, you know, you sort of, you, know, you need a big spectacle, something that really, you know, sets it apart. And mm-hmm. uh, and so that's kind of what I'm, I'm talking about when I say pull out the stops. I mean, I kind of know what the third book will be about, in a rough general sort of way, but in terms of what's going to actually happen in it, if I get an idea right now, it's going into the book I'm working on. And if it doesn't fit, well then of course I'll I'll go ahead and put it in the in the uh, in the file and for future use. But but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold back anything that that seems to fit. If if it's there, I'm gonna use it. Okay. Uh, Magic mirror. It's uh, is that's a standalone as well, right? It is a standalone. Um, I had an idea once upon a time that I might want to write those characters again, but uh, it's it's um, I call it a sort of a supernatural mystery that uh, mashed up with a disaster thriller. But um, yeah, that one's an interesting. It, I, I, it was my attempt to write an X Files type story, and mm-hmm. uh, I was inspired by the. Uh, the real-life um, disappearance of the bass guitar player for Iron Butterfly, Philip Taylor Kramer, who okay. uh, after after his time with Iron Butterfly, he was uh, a theoretical physicist and um, mysteriously disappeared back in the uh, in the 80s. And Is that I was watching. Uh, that real? Yes. 
I, uh, I, I was watching uh, VH1 <laughs> Behind the Music, and I heard wow. this story, and it, it, you know, it was a mysterious disappearance of a physicist who uh-huh. used to be uh, in a rock band. And I was like, whoa, that's, I, I know, I didn't feel up to the task of, of writing about the real story, so it just inspired my book. But I feel like uh-huh. there's got to be a story there, you know. I mean, what? Yeah. All the possible explanations. I mean, was he abducted by the Soviets, or was he, he uh, you know, did he develop interdimensional travel and, and just disappear off the face of the earth? And <laughs> as it turned out, about a week after, about a week after I heard that, they actually found his body, and it was a very, you know, prosaic and and uh, he committed suicide, which is sad. Uh, but uh, it wasn't that he'd been abducted by Soviets. At least that's the official story. But uh, you know, the the idea was still there for sort of to take this yeah. this sort of a you know a, an artist who also is a physicist and turn it into a and that was the the genesis for Magic Mirror, uh, and it works in a lot of different other things. It's probably closer to being uh, science fiction than a lot of my other stuff because uh, it deals with uh, the other well, there's, there's huh. that. There's maglev uh, ideas for maglev space launch facility and things like that, and of course mm-hmm. uh, spoon bending, which fe- features pretty prominently. Into oh, it, is that so. what the picture was? I was wondering. Uh, it looked yeah. like a, a bent spoon, and I'm going like, yep. what? Uh, and that again, that's that was one of those weird little things that I, uh, when I was reading uh, Michael Crichton's book Travels, which is his <laughs> memoir. Mm-hmm. He talks about his own experiences with spoon bending, and it was just bizarre to read about <laughs> this. You know, I consider him to be a fairly rational individual uh, in most areas, and yet he's talking about going to these spoon bending parties in his book, and and it's just like, wow, that's crazy. And so that kind of inspired me to want to kind of uh, write a story where I incorporated all those little elements into it. I don't know. Um, based on his, his, his books, I would say that he definitely had, you know, one foot in the out there, because you know, timeline and and you know, some of the really great books. Um, he had to think about the what if, and he he probably had you know gone to these kind of parties and and witnessed things that you know just set his mind at all sorts of what if situations. Uh, which is cool because we gave us we gave us some of the really cool uh, stories that he's given us. As I as I tell people, if you ever see me in a restaurant uh, contemplating the flatware, you know what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> so far, no luck, but one of these days. No far, no luck. <laughs> I haven't tried. I haven't tried, but that that would be interesting. <laughs> So that I, I think runs down. Uh, you said you had some novellas. Tell us how you got involved with those because they're shorter works. They were asked. You, I, I believe you said something about them being asked to do. You were asked to write the shorter works. Right. There was the uh, I mentioned the call sign books with Jeremy Robinson, um, and that basically came about because, and this is something that authors often do is you you ask another author for uh, a cover blurb and mm-hmm. so I uh, you know I uh, send out a bunch of letters to various authors saying hey I've written a book will you please give me a cover blurb and about half of them were very gracious and said I just can't I don't have the time and the other half said sure I'll be able to do it 
and Jeremy was one of the people who was uh, in the latter group. And uh, so I, I kind of developed a, a relationship with him in terms of, uh, you know, being pen pals or email buddies right. or whatever they call it. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of ironic because in his second novel of the chess team series, which is called Instinct, um, he has a uh, a scene where there's this strange attack, which looks like terrorism, although in fact it's revealed to be uh, otherworldly monsters, uh, that destroy a small town in Oregon called Celeste. And uh, mm-hmm. Celeste is a real town. Jeremy's from New Hampshire. But he just found it in, a, in an atlas or something. But I grew up in Celeste, Oregon, which is one of those weird uh, coincidences. <laughs> you know, the Celeste, Oregon population under a thousand, and uh, nobody else has ever heard of it. But Jeremy happens to have destroyed it, and so uh, that was another <laughs> excuse for me to chat with him and to point out how he got everything wrong. Because uh, I think in his story, the population is three thousand, and I said there's never been three thousand people in that town. But uh, you know, we we corresponded a bit, and uh, he was very supportive of my uh, some of my books. And so when the time came for him to do his novellas, he uh, contacted me, and uh, it was a very it continues to be a very uh, good relationship. I, I still do some uh, work with him. Uh, of course, we have Prime coming out, and then uh, another of our mutual friends. And this is one of the great things about being a writer in a, in a genre like this is that you start to make lots of mutual friends. Uh, and uh, one of our mutual friends is Stephen Saville, who's a uh, he's an author who lives in Sweden. He's British. Um, he was kind of wanting to do a similar thing with uh, some novellas based on characters from his novel, which is called Silver. And it's about, what else? A group of uh, secret operatives who are looking for treasures and things like that. So... Uh, he wanted to do a novella for that and uh, contacted me, and we've been work- we worked together and did a story. It's called War God, and it's about a search for the sword of Julius Caesar. Uh, oh, which okay, the one that you had is, in his uh, hands. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not anything that's talked about in in uh, Caesar's actual histories that he wrote, but it is mentioned in some of. Um, I believe Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote uh, the history of the kings of England, he developed a whole uh, mythology about Julius Caesar's sword and how it was uh, left behind in uh, in his conquest of uh, England, and then it eventually became the same sword that uh, King Arthur used, you know, that he pulled from the, so- the stone, uh, and so you know. It, it was really fertile territory for something that uh, nobody had ever heard of. So uh, I did some research into that and came up with a story and wrote that with Stephen. And uh, so that's also out there in the, in the Amazon universe. Uh, <laughs> and actually that's, um, it's just been uh, released as an omnibus with uh, Stephen worked with some other authors as well. And there were three different books based on his series and they've all been released together. Uh, as the the Ogmios, O-G-M-I-O-S uh, novels. That's actually uh, a name that comes in, you'll find it in uh, in Nostradamus. That's where he got the name for that. But uh, if, you, if you like stories that are kind of uh, a little bit of conspiracy thriller, a little bit of treasure hunt, 
those are together along with silver. You can find those. Uh, and one of those is mine. There you go. Um, I would be derelict of my duties if I didn't mention that you're also one of the authors that are going to be out at the Phoenix First Friday Art and Book Fair. Yes, and I'm forward to that. I am leaving everybody information on that. Uh, it's a Facebook page because that's uh, where you can find out you know, exactly the address. It's going to be at a little restaurant called Squash Blossom. It's right off of First Street, which is, uh, you know, it's, it, for those of you guys know who where the uh, film bar is, y- you can see it right from the backyard. So you see it right from their patio. So the film bar is like right down the street. Um, so they've got a lot of a lot of really cool, eclectic, artistic uh, businesses in that area. And uh, Squash Blossom is one of those nice little restaurants. And uh, as with any little restaurant, it can always use anybody's help. And so we kind of were pulling together to do some events there, and they're very open, uh, apparently been very open to the Monday group for the uh, meet the meetup group for you guys. And uh, great, great couple, husband and wife, uh, work in that little restaurant. And so uh, they're wonderful. One of those come in and do, uh, they they have like art on the walls that they display, you know, uh, for no cost to artists uh, on a monthly basis. And, of course, they're very open to uh, our creative types that like to create books. So, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be there on August second, six thirty p.m. And official address is seven hundred five North First Street between McKinley and East Pierce. I'm sorry, Pierce Pierce Street. So it's between McKinley and Pierce Street, right in the heart of right near uh, about block away from uh, Roosevelt. So Phoenix Church Friday is in that little square area. Um, and that's where they walk about and do uh, go to the different artistic uh, shows and things that are going on that that night. Uh, so we're very happy to be there. Uh, I will also be there with you. And uh, yes, we'll have fun. And, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I love talking about you know this stuff, the the books and and the the process. I love talking to other writers. I think that's one of the most fantastic things you can do is talk to another person who's creative and wants to tell a story and encourage them. Uh, And I feel like that's how you pay it forward. And uh, I I have people who inspired me Mm -hmm. uh, both from afar and personally, you know, in in close friendships. And I want to be able to do that for other people. And basically I just love telling stories and I love talking about telling stories. So I hope lots of people show up for that and uh, we can uh, talk shop. Yeah, that we talk shop where we can, uh, yeah, it's just be able to pull other people in who uh, who aren't writing the books and who love to read, and uh, talk them into you know, loving our one of our books as much as we love it. So that'd be good. That'd be fun. So yeah, it should be a good night. Mike has a guitarist, so we have a little bit of music. Uh, they've got a bar there, uh, so you know it's a full bar. Um, so you know, guys, you know, think well. It's just a breakfast place. No, it's 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 more than just a breakfast place. They're also going to have food there, um, but they also have a bar right in there. They just don't use it very much, obviously. 
<laughs> not everybody drinks in the morning, but <laughs> I know some authors that do, but, you know. Authors do, yes. Authors, <laughs> you know, that's part of the creative process. Well, the problem is not and that's that all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, not that we not that we drink in the morning. It's just that our morning is somebody else's night. Exactly. So, you know, our night time because that's about what time we wind up going to bed. So that's, that's all I got to say about it. <laughs> so it's that time, and I usually ask a question, and if you've heard any of my issues, you might know what it is. And the question is, and now that you have successfully slain the dragon, how will you celebrate? Uh, the dragon of, of being on a radio show? <laughs> well, see, it has to be whatever that first comes to your mind. <laughs> ah. So if, well, uh, if this is your dragon, dinner. then okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with... with uh, Talking about publishing earlier, um, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of authors make um, is that they write their book and they find some way to get that book published. And then they spend the rest of their lives, or at least the next year or so, trying to get people to read that book. Mm-hmm. And you know that, that's their dragon. They, slay, they slew the dragon, they got their book published, and now they want to share it with the world. And that's great. That's of course you want to, but the kind of success that, that most of us want as as authors, it doesn't come with the first book. It, it, no. you know, you've got to keep writing. You've got to keep producing stories. You don't look for some magic fix, you know, magic pill that's going to make people discover your book. You just keep writing and keep telling stories. And maybe by the second, third, fourth, whatever novel, you discover that people are actually finding your stories. You just got to keep yeah. moving forward. You know, the the dragon you slew. He's got brothers just, and, and cousins <laughs> who are looking for you. So your job is not done. Um, That's the adventure so writer yeah. in you. <laughs> celebrate and then get to work on the next book. Yeah, that's a good one. That's the first time I ever heard that one, um, that he's got brothers, so you better get moving. <laughs> And that's the case. If you're going to stop and look behind you, uh, then you're stopped. So you stop looking behind you and see who's coming up behind you and just, and keep moving forward. So with that, that's that's what I and, and, recommend for others. You know, I, I've watched lots of, uh, of authors that, that published their first book about the same time I did. Uh, and I, you know, I admit I have no clue what it is that's going to make people want to read my books. I don't know how to use social media very well. Uh, I think you know the first time I met you, we were I, I was giving a little presentation about how to use Twitter, and I still uh-huh. don't use Twitter very effectively. I know how to use it, but I don't do it. Uh, but you know, I I'm starting to see. You know, I am I am not the, <clears throat> I'm not there yet. I am not to the place where I can live off of writing books for a living, which is part of the reason why I'm going to become a science teacher. But I'm so much closer to it now than I was a few years ago, you know. And so, it's that whole, uh, you know, the old, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and mm-hmm. then it continues with another single step and another single step, 
And, you know, and that's what we're always doing. We're always trying to move towards the goal. And, uh, yeah, the goal is, is to become, you know, Stephen King or, or uh, James Patterson and, and to, you know, be independently <laughs> wealthy and never have to worry and just write books for the heck of it and everybody wants to read them anyway. Uh, and, you know, yeah. that's a long ways off. But being able to maybe, you know, pay all my bills from the books I write, that's not so far off now. And, uh, you know, always moving forward. So you just got to keep moving forward towards that goal. Like you say, don't look behind. Focus on, on what what you're moving towards and keep doing that. Keep writing. Keep coming up with new stories. And don't stress about what can I do to promote. Ah. Well, yeah, it's just working a little time. And I just want everybody to know, also on, on that vein, uh, that you're now writing articles for the WAD. Yay. And just yes. saying, so you've got your own column. It's it's I, fun I, I, and, I, and scary <laughs> because it's not fiction. And I have to, you know, I, I just uh, did a little, uh, I did a little article on uh, an amazing new uh, innovation, the wood, the wood battery. Battery yes. made out of wood. That's, and, that's, that's uh, already I, now. I had to go learn about battery science. <laughs> Just like make sure I got all my facts right. And uh but but I really do believe uh you know, talking about science and uh I just I think that um we live in such a a technology driven world and yet most of us don't understand how the technologies work. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, it's we just get mad when they don't work right. Right. And, you know, I, I, I get that we're not all auto mechanics, and yet we drive cars. But at the same time, uh, you know, if these technologies get too far ahead of us so that we mm. can't even understand them on a kind of a basic conceptual level, yeah. then, you know, that's going to really hurt us all. Uh, and we're dealing with lots of complex social and political problems that, you know, that our understanding of these things when people start to, to explain to us why something is important or, or why we should be scared and they start throwing these strange terms at us and it's all science and we're like, you know, we just kind of want to throw up our hands because we don't understand it. And the reason why is because we kind of have stopped paying attention in, in education. We, we stopped emphasizing science literacy. And, yeah. you know, science fiction has done a great job of, of kind of bringing, making science cool again. Um, and and it's I think uh, James Rollins, one of my favorite authors, recently uh, did a, an article for uh, um, gee I think it was for the Huffington Post. It was called uh, "We're All Mad Scientists Now," and it was about the fact that there are you can now uh, you know using stuff that you can buy uh, you know, online and, and from science supply stores and computers. Uh, you can do your own genetic resequencing. You can sequence DNA using your own computer, and uh, people using you know their backyard laboratories are, are able to make astonishing discoveries in, in astronomy and other fields. So they're really you know we we are in a good place in terms of, of the access to to scientific literacy, but I think by and large a lot of problems uh, that, that we're facing as a society as a global society. Uh, and, and again, like the, one of my particular ones of particular interest to me is, is climate change. Uh, people don't have the uh, they don't have the background to, to really be able to separate 
the fact from fiction when they're getting the, the messages. And there's a lot of misleading information out there. And I, I think that advocating for science literacy, getting people interested in science and, and understanding what science means. And uh, sure, I love to have mad scientists in my novels, but you know, real science isn't done by, you know, it isn't a bunch of guys trying to figure out how to clone dinosaurs. It, it's about you know the, the research and the, the methodologies and, and trying to, to be able to produce you know evidence in a, in a, mm-hmm. a very rational, logical manner. And, and you know we don't need to be scared of it, but we do need to kind of understand when, when somebody talks about a science, we, we, sh- we need a, a basic comprehension level. And so that's why uh, you know, I, I really think science literacy is so important. And any chance I can get to be a part of that, so the idea of, of uh, being able to write a science column, I love being able to do that. <laughs> and uh, I just gotta hope that <laughs> well, I, I keep I, it I interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I, there's so much to write out there. Uh, we are in our last minute, so I wanted to make okay. sure we're around about it. But I'm glad that you brought up the, you know, the, the whole issue of science and and the importance of of you know being science smart. And and you know it's just a matter of being interested in our world around us, really. And exactly. Yeah, so it's that simple. It's just you gotta take your head out of the television and say, "Gee, that's a rainbow. How that made that work?" And you can look it up. You know, we have this awesome thing called the internet. We can find out so much about it, anything. So uh, use it. <laughs> So with that, I want to say thanks so much for coming on with me today. Thanks for having me. And this is one of those gifts that keep on giving. So once we, we're off of here in about an hour, it goes into archive mode. And I can give you the code and you can put it, you know, it gives you like a little player with your pictures on it and everything. And uh, you can put it wherever you want on your website or blog or wherever you want. And, it'll, and it keeps on getting hits and listens. So... That's nice. So with that, this is KWOD Radio. And this is Patty Holstrand signing out for the day. Thanks, Sean. Thank you.